Welcome to this message from Life Assembly, a thriving church in the northwest suburbs of Minneapolis. Please visit us online at lifemn.org for more information. And now join us as we pursue Jesus together. I have been looking forward to this Sunday for a long time, and I have to be honest with you. The last time that uh, Dr. Renee uh, Brown here was, it was like over a year ago. Was it two years ago? And I have tried. I've tried. I didn't camp out in front of his house, but I've really been trying uh, to get him here. But church, you are, you are really in for, for a treat today. Both uh, Joy, his wife, and Renee have very impressive credentials. Um, Joy, she is, uh, she's been at the, when she was at North Central uh, University, she was involved with the business and finance, I believe, as the vice president over that area. And now she is um, a vice president of finance and a CFO of a nonprofit in Minneapolis. And uh, Renee, he is at North Central. You saw, maybe I put, it on, I put it on Facebook today, but he's the dean of college and graduate professional education at North Central University. Um, these, these two have really uh, ministered into my life. And uh, part of the reason that I want them here so much is because how they've spoken to my life. And how many of you know that you need people that speak into your life? People that encourage you, people that push you forward, people who make you better, and that's how I feel about them. And actually, um, my wife asked me one time, I, I, we just had coffee, um, and I'd come back and I was super excited because I'm always excited after I, I have time with Renee, and she said, how, how was it? And I thought about it, and the only way that I could think of it is, I said, you know, in, in Luke where you have Elizabeth, where she has a, this, she's pregnant, and then Mary finds out she's pregnant, and she goes and she visits Elizabeth. And as they meet, it says that in, in the womb, the baby leapt. Now, I'm not pregnant, okay? But that's how I described it. The spirit within me leaps when I get to be with these people. And so I'm so honored that you're here. Um, Joy is going to be sharing in song at the end of uh, the service today. But would you please uh, just give a round of applause for uh, Renee for me. Good morning, Life Assembly. How are you? Uh, I will concur. Um, the feeling is definitely mutual. Whenever Pastor Dale and I get together, it's such a wonderful uh, time of, of mutual enjoyment. Uh, we see eye to eye on so many things, and um, the Lord, I think, is doing something. He's up to something. Um, good morning to you. How are you this morning? I hope you're well. For me, this is not the best time of year, though. Um, fall is always associated with death for me. I grew up in the Caribbean, so fall, you know, we don't have fall. Things don't go brown, and I remember the first time I moved to the United States, uh, it was early winter, and I started to break stuff from the garden because I thought it was dead. And the homeowner said, you can't do that, it's not dead yet. Oh, okay. So fall is a strange time for me. I'm coming to enjoy it a little bit, but winter, I'm still not sold on it, especially up here. I'm excited this morning to join Pastor Dale this week uh, in a series on Christian discipleship called One Step Leads to Another. I've been listening to the messages, and it is such a timely message. To me, the church has only one job, one it's not to make you cuter, right, although we hope. It's not to make you richer. It's not to make you happier or more successful. It really isn't. I mean, you may get all these things along the way, but the one task of the church has always been discipleship, Christian discipleship. If we fail here, we fail everywhere. And so many of our churches are not teaching the fundamentals of Christian discipleship. Because you know why? It's not sexy. It's not cute. You can't reduce all of Christian discipleship 
to a three-point sermon for a half hour, and then we go home and everything feels good. Christian discipleship really is about hard work and discipline. I was listening about from last week's sermon on the time for preparation, and it's so true. Um, those who fail to plan, plan to fail. The same is true of preparation. The same is true of spiritual preparation. If we are not prepared for the journey, if we don't take stock of our journey, we will fail. Christian maturity is not something that occurs by accident. It is something that is accomplished through intentional effort. No one builds a house, right, haphazardly, unless you expect that house not to last. So I'm joining this morning, and I'm happy to join in this, in this message. Now, I want to also state, as um, Pastor Dale said, this is a judgment-free zone, all right? Uh, see this as me working out my own practical theology issues as you watch me and as I invite you to join me in the process. What are we going to be talking about today? Very touchy and important topic. I've titled the message, Target Fixation. Now, it's often called, um, or sometimes called, object fixation. The two are sometimes interchangeable. Object fixation or target fixation. I'll tell you a little bit about what that means later on. But one thing you will notice today is that there's nothing except me on the screen. <laughs> there's a reason for that. We'll talk about that in a minute. If you have your Bibles with you, let's turn to the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, I have to apologize when I get excited. My Barbadian accent comes out. Uh, no, it is not Wisconsin. It is So if it sounds kind of off, that's all right. Listen to the words. Genesis 3, 1 to 6. Now, the serpent was more... Mo than any other of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Let's also read verse 7. Then the eyes of, the, of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Turn with me as well to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Actually, yes, let's do both verses. The writer of Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And then turn with me as well to 2 Corinthians 4, Verse 16 through 18, 2 Corinthians 4. No, it's not 2 Corinthians. Okay, 2 Corinthians. <laughs> couple of you got that joke. <laughs> Paul says here to the Corinthians, Therefore, we lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that will far outweigh them all. So we fix our eyes 
not what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. Shall we pray? Lord, we ask this morning that you would do one thing for us that will actually change our entire lives, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see you. That as the old song says, that we would turn our eyes upon Jesus, that we would look full in his wonderful face, and that the things of this world would go strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Let this be so for us as we pause today to meditate upon these words that you have written for all understanding. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Now we've read three different texts of Scripture, but they all have at least one body part in common. Did you see it? That's a hint. The eyes. The eyes. They all have something in common, the eyes. Now, the eyes are marvelous creations. Um, according to the Canadian Association of Optometrists, they tell us that our eyes focus on 50 different objects every second. Every second. The only organ that's more complex than your eyes is the brain. Your eye has approximately, get this, I didn't know this before, two million, million moving parts. Doesn't seem possible, does it? Your eye can distinguish between 10 million different colors. It's awesome. If your eyes were a digital camera, the resolution would be about 576 megapixels. Now, for those of you who don't have a comparison, the average really, 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 really good phone has a camera of 32 megapixels. My camera, which is really, really good, not really, 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 really good, has only 16 megapixels. So our eyes are able to perceive at a resolution that is absolutely incredible. They tell us that your eyes can see a candle about 1.7 miles away. Your iris, that's the colored part of your eye, has about 256 different or unique characteristics. It's incredible, this creation that God has made. The fastest moving muscle in your body is in your eye. Your eyes contract within less than one hundredth of a second. It's incredible. It really is. But for me, this is even more exciting because I'm a teacher and a learner. Seeing takes up approximately 50% of your brain's processing power. Just seeing. And here's the biggie. 80% of all of your learning comes through your eyes. The eyes, an incredible feat of creation. You know, the truth is, there's never been a better time for eyes. Never been in the history of the world. We have glasses, woohoo, right? Contacts. We have no line bifocals, and all the over 40s say amen. <laughs> And if you have a little bit more money, there's also laser surgery and uh, corrective surgeries for vision and cataracts, all kinds of, of stuff. It's amazing what we can do. Uh, many of us, if you were living just 100 years ago, someone might be leading us around because we'd be considered blind. But we're also living in a time where there's a real feast for the eyes too, right? I think about my own lifetime and the types of video images and how they've improved over time. Kids, if you get a chance on YouTube and watch some of the old stuff that we had to suffer through. We thought it was great, but it was black and white. Remember black and white TV? Man, that was a long time ago. 
Remember Pong as centipede? Aster okay, I got some partners here. Asteroids, these names don't mean anything to you, right? I remember the first games that I played were text-based games because, listen to it, computers did not have graphics cards. So all our games were text-based. Oregon Trail, I remember playing Lemonade and Zork. Who remembers Zork? All right, I got a fellow nerd, yes, indeed. Good man. You remember a time when you went to the movie theater and you were disappointed? Remember that? Because the image you saw on the screen could never compare to the picture you had in your mind. You remember that? And then there was something called the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And all of a sudden, I saw Iron Man and I said, okay, you have officially blown my mind. The ability of these people to create these special effects in a way that my mind could not even produce, it is amazing. We are living in a, an incredible time. In just over 130 years, we have gone from zero screens to either five, six, or seven screens, depending on how you count them. So let's count them. You started with the movies. The first moving picture was a, a show called Round Hay Garden Scene. It lasted all of 2.11 seconds. Very first one in 1888. Since then, so we had movies. We've had TV, number two. Everyone counting? Number three is your computer screen. Number four is phone screen. Number five is, can you think of it? Your watch, number five. Number six is, anyone knows? Well, yes, that's true. I don't have it in there. Hmm. So it may be eight then. I was going to put cards with that. Glasses, augmented reality. Oh, it's coming. It's big. It's here, right? Where you put your glasses on and you're walking somewhere and it puts up a heads up display right in your glasses and you could see you're looking at this store over here and you say, oh, that store sells this and here's what they have in stock. That is coming, friends. When the movie, um, what was it called? Uh... Oh, I forgot the name of the movie. But anyway, he was walking around and he could see Minority Report. That's it. There it is. He'd walk around and he could see that is here. It is real. Of course, the seventh screen, if we don't count the car screen, which might be eight then. Thanks, Joy. Is, the, is virtual reality. People are putting their screens on and nowadays, it is not virtual reality years ago where you'd end up feeling like, whoa, and you want to throw up. This stuff is real. They're actually able to see your hands now. So you put these screens, these glasses on, and you're able to touch and manipulate things in this virtual world, and you could see your hands. That's, that's incredible what's happening. Did you know that the average American now spends over 11 hours a day watching a screen? And so we blame the kids. It's you kids, right? It's your fault. You guys are watching too many screens. That's not true. Do you know the largest users of screens is? Between 50 and 64, those are the ones who are spending, listen to it, 12 hours and 50 minutes approximately every day on screens. That just blows my mind. Perhaps the 50s or 64-year-olds are just the most honest. <laughs> if you can't say amen, say ouch, right? <laughs> so why is this proliferation? I'm, I'm getting to my point, but, but I want to set this context for you. Why this proliferation? Why this multiplication of screens? Because there is a profit motive. See, market, marketers have learned how to monetize our eyes. They've learned how to make money from following what we see because they know something. They spend all this amount of money because they know that our eyes lead. Or rather, let's put it this way. Where our eyes go, there goes our heart and there goes our wallet. Simple and crass, but it's true. 
Let's take a quick look at some of the stats that are out there. Um, and we're going to focus on everyone beats on Facebook and social media. Let me choose someone else. Let's choose you. Um, the first YouTube video was posted in 2005. It's hard to imagine it's been 14 years, but 2005. Now, 400 hours of video are uploaded to YouTube every minute. 400 hours. Over 1 billion hours of video are watched on YouTube every day. 1 billion. Where do these people find the time? <laughs> the top 10 YouTube channels earned over $180 billion in just one year. The top earner for YouTube made $22 million in one year. And the YouTube revenue as a whole for the company, which of course is a part of Alphabet, which is, used to be the former Google, right? The total revenue is, about, is between $9.5 billion to $14 billion. Facebook alone is worth over $200 billion. Instagram, $35 billion. I mean, the stats are absolutely... Advertisers spend approximately $93 billion on ads. A 32% increase in 2008. Another thing that's fascinating to me. There are 3.4 billion across the world who are on social media. That's half the world. 5.11 billion people have cell phones. I gotta tell you this funny story. It is a true story. So I'm home, my wife and I and, and my daughter, we're watching a nature show about Maasai warriors trying to protect their fields from these elephants. And I'm sitting there and the phone rings. So I'm looking around my house trying to figure out, okay, the Maasai warrior then reaches out into his pocket and pulls out a cell phone. I'm saying, this is crazy. <laughs> but the proliferation of screens is everywhere. It's penetrated into every culture. These are not necessarily bad things, but they can be. See, with this increase, there are some causes for concern. One National Institutes of Health study says that the screen time that people spend, especially children, actually changes the structure of their brains. I'm not being an alarmist, but something is happening here. They studied 11,000 9 and 10 year old children for a period of over 10 years and discovered this, that the brain scans show a thinning of the cortex, that is the outer layer of neural tissue responsible for processing information that comes from all the other senses. Something is happening. Connections have also been made between screen time and loneliness, screen time and um, reductions in sex and, and reproduction, reductions in sleep and depression. So much so that it's app on your phone right now. Screen time, do you have the screen time app? It gives you a report of how much time you spend on the screen. This is the world that we're living in. It's a world of screens, inundated with screens. But there's another phenomenon I want to talk about today that's actually very important, incredibly important to understand, and it's actually the title of a message. It's called target fixation. Back in World War II, we just found that bomber pilots who would go on these high-speed uh, strafing runs would actually fly into the target and kill themselves. It's the strangest thing. Strangest thing. They're locked onto a target, and that's all they see, and they don't even see the ground coming up to them. That is amazing to me. I discovered this when I learned to ride a motorcycle. Last year, I decided, you know what, I need to learn something new. I always hated motorcycles, but I thought, I needed to do something I'd never done before, just to remember what it's like to learn something from the ground up. Of course, I was embarrassed by the old ladies who were like taking the, on the motorcycles and they're going around and I'm, 
and I'm struggling to keep, and every minute I'm putting my foot down. But one of the things they told us that stuck with me is that it is almost like magic. When you're on a motorcycle, any motorcycle riders in the room? All right, a couple of them, cool. That, what, they tell you this, right? Wherever your eyes go, you go. Wherever your eyes go, you go. Now, again, I have two motorcycle friends. You understand, at least three. Um, you understand what it's like, right? When you're riding a motorcycle, that those manhole covers are your enemy. <laughs> you know, uh, I remember, I mean, and I still, I still have to practice this. I'm going on a motorcycle, I'm riding, and as I'm going, I see the manhole cover, and I'm saying to myself, I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to avoid it. I'm going to avoid it. Bloop. I fall into it. Why? Why? Because of this target fixation. Our minds are like this. It happens to you when you drive your car, too, if you're not, you may not be as aware of this. But if you're in your car and you're driving, and you do this to look down and look somewhere else, inadvertently, this happens to you, too. You do this. You swerve. If you look this way, you go this way. There's something about this incredibly strong eye, brain, and body connection that programs us. We are programmed then for our bodies to go where our eyes go. Your eyes, friends, have an incredible ability to influence your direction, your choices, and your actions. So let's combine some things together. So you have a strong eye-brain connection when it comes to learning and behavior. You have an incredible number of realistic screens that are calling for your name. You have that we're spending more and more time watching these screens. You have now this strong profit incentive for the media to push more and more outrageous content to feed your minds and to feed your eyes. Then you have now this, on top of this, the power of this thing called target fixation. When you combine these all together, we are creating something of a vortex. In my view then, the greatest discipleship challenge of the 21st century and the foreseeable future relates to or eyes. If it is true that wherever our eyes go, we go, and that it is also true of individuals and a culture as a whole, if these things are true, and we have all this proliferation of material coming to us, then discipleship has got to be measured and understood then, perhaps first and foremost from the perspective of our eyes. What are we doing with our eyes? What are you doing with your eyes? If you don't believe me how powerful screens are, let me give you a couple of examples. Researchers actually were able to trace a significant uptick in the number of teen suicides and attempted suicides after the airing of a show called 13 Reasons Why. Direct correspondence. Some of you may not know the, 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 the story, but the story is simply about a young woman who committed suicide, sent these tapes, all the people she thought were responsible for suicide. One show, significant uptick. But it happens in even less dire situations. I remember when I saw my first um, Batman movie, right? I was fascinated by the penguin. One of the things the penguin could do was that he would have an umbrella and he'd jump off a building. And he'd, be, he'd float. So you know what I did? I said, I could do this. <laughs> I got an umbrella. I got a roof. What does hinder me? <laughs> so I climb on the roof and I jump off. Of course, the spines are too weak. The whole thing flies up. I land on the ground. Not to be deterred, I said, 
maybe it's my material that I'm using. So I got a garbage bag. It's, it's going to work this time. I jump. Of course, didn't understand this thing called terminal velocity and that I wasn't reaching terminal velocity and all kinds of stuff. But nonetheless, these things have a significant impact. Screens impact behavior. Maybe yours was Thor or Frozen or, uh, or some other uh, TV show or movie that was deeply impactful. The reality is, we are drawn to, and sometimes we become what we watch. Put another way, because 80% of our learning is associated with our eyes, and because 50% of our brain power is devoted to visual stimuli, our eyes have an outsized influence on our beliefs, our interior disposition, and our actions. There's no such thing as simply passive watching. Even if you think you're passively watching, your brain is being influenced by what you see. So let's look at the scripture again. I have a few minutes here left, I think. What time do you normally... Don't say that. <laughs> Let's look at scripture again. Genesis chapter 3. Eve's eyes deceived her. Now, this is an example of what not to do. What does it say? If we go back to the text, it says, When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for wisdom, she took some and ate it. She saw it was good for food. Now, what's interesting to me is that there's a progression here. Before I get to that progression, though, let me make this statement. The unfiltered information that Eve received through her eyes was at odds with God's truth. And ironically, that information that she received through her eyes, her visual stimulus, uh, these visual stimulus actually blinded her to the eternal truth. Her eyes blinded her. It's ironic, isn't it? Is this happening to us today? That our eyes are blinding us from the real truth? Notice the progression. She saw it was good for food. Now, this is an interesting statement. How, how can you see that something is good for food? At best, this statement is only probably true. I mean, you could look a lot. At, there's a lot of things out there that look pretty, and you don't want to eat them. There's some fruit that we know of that look wonderful. In fact, one of the things that we were taught, I grew up in the Caribbean, all kinds of fruit everywhere, and there's some bad, bad stuff out there too. And we were always told, if you see a tree, and these fruit are too pretty, and no other animals are eating it, don't touch it. It's not good. Maybe you have similar rules for your kids, right? Uh, how would she know that it's good for eating? She didn't know. It was only probably true. So where was she basing this information on? Actually, she was basing this information on something else. The second point, that it was pleasing to the eye. Now, that was true because it was subjectively true. It was good for her to see it. It looked good to her. It was pleasing to her eye. But the last statement is what blows me away every time. It says that, she saw that it was also desirable for gaining wisdom. This is a strange leap. First of all, she's told this by a snake. Don't listen to snakes, okay? Don't talk to snakes, all right? I was living in Springfield, and they told us she should never kill the snakes. And I said, but as far as I'm concerned, the only good snake is a dead snake. The law was not on my side. <laughs> but so she got information from a bad source, but then she's jumping to a conclusion based on what? The only thing we can say is, because of that second statement, it looked good to her eyes. 
Do you see the power of our eyes? Just by looking at this fruit, the whole course of her life was changed. You see, because of how our brains and our eyes are wired, the more we stare at something, the more it seems. And the more we try to justify it or reconcile it to our frame of reference. Listen, this is really important. The more we stare at something, the more normal it seems. And the more we try to justify it or reconcile it to our frame of reference. I had a friend, I wouldn't call his name because he may be insulted. This is many, many years ago, about 30 years ago. We were doing ministry together. And when I first met this young man, I thought, wow, now I'm going to be transparent here. What an incredibly ugly human being. I mean, I was, what, five years old? No. I was a little older than that. I thought, oh, my goodness. Wow. He is not pretty at all. But I got to know him. Spent time with him. I cannot tell you what, when, it did, when it happened. But he went from being ugly to being handsome in front of my eyes. He didn't change. My perception, because of familiarity, produced a change. It's amazing. That's why they say that beauty is where? It's in the eye of the beholder. I got two more pages, so we are almost done. But check this out. Do you remember married couples' bedrooms on TV in the 70s and 60s? Right, Desi Arnaz and um, Lucille Ball, and remember the honeymooners? Do you know what I actually believed? I really believed that American couples actually slept on two different beds. I really believe that. Maybe you believe that. It's not true. Of course, look what has happened now. I mean, wow. They leave nothing for the imagination, even on broadcast television. But now it's fairly normal, right? We don't typically blush to those kinds of things anymore, do we? Because over time, we get desensitized. The more we see something, the more we try to we justify it and reconcile it to our frame of reference. Now, I'm not trying to be a prude here. I hope you're not hearing me a prude. I just want, to understand, want us to understand this concept. But let's look at our next text, Hebrews 12, 3. And this is where, this is what we ought to be doing. Hebrews 12, 3 tells us that we must f- fix our eyes. The Greek there, means to direct our attention without distraction. It's like, put some blinkers on. That's what we do with horses, right? Why do we put blinkers on horses? Because if they see there, they're going to run there, right? Fix your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter or the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Put your blinkers on. You see, our new target fixation must become the example of Jesus. This is what we must do. Our eyes must be so trained that when we see Jesus, we naturally go. Here he is. Here he is. Our fixation must become Jesus. If we become, or at least we uh, become oriented to what we watch, ask this question. What would happen to you if we spent more time really watching Jesus? Watching Jesus. There are multiple ways to watch Jesus. We read read about Jesus in the scripture. We pray. You see, This kind of watching, the Christian tradition calls adoration. This kind of watching, the Christian tradition calls worship. I become so enraptured by the one I see, that all I see is him. And because of that brain, eye, body mechanism, if my eyes are fixed on him, my natural 
inclination is to follow him. Many of us want to follow Jesus like this. Or, if you're like me when I was a kid with undiagnosed ADHD, we want to follow Jesus like this. Our call is that our eyes must be transfixed with a vision of Jesus. So that when we see him and he fills he then fills our minds. When he fills our minds, then he fills our hearts. When he fills our hearts, he fills our hands. So that head, heart, and hands fall in a harmony. This is what we call Christian discipleship. Let me push a little further on. I'll finish in a couple of minutes here. So what to do? Our new fixation has to become the example of Jesus. Study him. Oh, my goodness. Study him. Read everything you can about him. Get to know him. Talk to others about him. This will transform your life. Let your mouth and your eyes all the things pertain to Jesus. Here's the next thing we need to do, though. Our next target, then, of our fixation must be the things that God approves. This is incredible and important. We must focus on the things that God approves, things of eternal value. So we fix our eyes, verse 18 of 2 Corinthians says, we fix our eyes, scopeo is the word, to pay careful attention to. We get words like scope, you know, scopey from this word. Pay careful attention to. Not what is seen, but what is unseen. This is, this is insane. How can you fix your eyes on what is not seen? It's a mixed metaphor. Paul, what are you doing? But there's a spiritual truth contained in this mixed metaphor. That our eyes are to be ever upward. The things we see on YouTube, who remembers Gangnam Style? Raise your hand. Really high, really high. Wasn't that the hottest thing ever? Oh, wow, no. I mean, that's the first YouTube video to reach a billion views. We don't even know who he is or where he is now. We don't even care. Or what about your friend who ate this wonderful meal at wherever? Does it really matter? The next day, do you care? You see... Our screens are calling for our attention and they're telling us all kinds of stuff about who we are, all that kind of stuff about what the world is like. It's bombarding us. But when you sit down and, and watch it carefully and think through it, you realize most of this stuff is junk. You really think you've got Facebook friends? How many friends do you think you've got? How many real friends? I mean, you have people you call friends. But you spend so much time watching what they're doing and getting depressed because their lives look so wonderful and yours look so boring. The reality is, they're only showing you one side. They don't show you when they're curled up on the, on the uh, sofa in their pajamas and their hair is all a mess and they're eating um, chips. They don't show you that. But they show they're in Paris, eating at a sidewalk. Coming to a close, this is the first of two closes, so you're warned. <laughs> Why do we waste our energy on the things that are going to pass away? Why do we waste our brain power, 50% of our brain power? Why do we spend it on things that are going to pass away? Isn't it better to focus on the things that are eternal? So here's the big so what for us. What and a what now. So here's the big so what. I got this from my friends at Cedar Valley. I really like it. Imagine what spiritual giants we would be, 
how our world would be transformed if we all just spent half of our screen time every day on the things that are eternal. On worship, on prayer, study of scripture, on evangelism, on loving people. Those are the things that are eternal. They don't pass away. I encourage you to finish this sentence. Imagine how much better, blank, I would be if I devoted a quarter of my daily screen time on blank. Fill it in for yourself. You can see why I don't have screens. It would be pretty hypocritical for me to force you to watch <laughs> PowerPoints if I'm talking about let's reduce the number of screens and focus on what is important. That's a so what. Now, of course, anyone who knows me and knows the tech nerd that I am, even to preach this sermon is crazy. But what now? What do we do? What can we do about this? I've got three suggestions. The first is screen fasting. When this first came up, I used to, I used to laugh. Ha, 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 that's not real fasting. Come on. You're not starving and you're not feeling as though you're going to pass out. That's not true fasting. Until I realized that people who try to fast, it is very difficult to do. It really is. It calls upon us to have a level of self-discipline we've never had before, or may never have had before. So screen fasting. Some of you are going to have to be radical on this because the screen is really taking up too much of your life. You may have to quit cold turkey and then gradually introduce some other things. But self-denial, very important. To sit daily, uh, practice it every day. If you are spending 10 hours, if you're spending five hours, it's too much. If you're spending four hours, I think it's too much. Find ways to screen fast. But of course, if you're emptying one thing, what do you fill it up with? Here's, here's the thing. And here's the next point. Next suggestion, practice the art of reorientation. How do you do this? You need to constantly be reminding yourself what is important. What is important? Ask yourself questions like this. Will this thing matter next week? Will it matter next month? Will it matter next year? And if we can't answer in the affirmative, we need to ask, how much time will we want to devote on this? Of course, connected with this reorientation is focusing our spiritual eyes on Jesus. Focusing. Spending time every day focusing. Taking some of that screen time and making it focusing time on Jesus. The last very important thing. You, I, I encourage you to practice. And Joy, you can come up uh, uh, when you're ready. I call it eye-veiling. Strange concept. Comes from the 7th century. Actually, it comes from the Bible, but it was most practiced as I practiced in the 7th century. The question is, we have all these screens around us. What do we do? One, one option is to cover the, cover the thing that you're looking at, cover the screen, right? That's true, but all the screens. That, does that really work? The early mystics in the Christian faith said, you know, covering up the thing can actually lead to fixation on the thing because prohibition actually can create desire. So what do you do? Okay, so you... Covering the thing may not work. What about if I cover my eyes? That, would, that seems to work, but you don't, can't get anywhere. Can't cover your eyes. Can't live, can't live with your eyes covered, can you? So Isaac Nineveh said, 
the only, in fact, the best place for that veil to go. And it sounds kind of strange to us. that the veil needs to go behind our eyes. To develop the spiritual habit that allows us to control where our eyes go. what you're struggling with in this area. But I think many of us need to make a covenant with our eyes, as Job says. We live in a world that surrounds us with information and all kinds of screens. Some of it is obviously dangerous. We know this, right? Some of it is dangerous and objectifying to women, and men, and we know this, and we avoid that stuff, but sometimes the false sense of security, believing that the other stuff, the other stuff is okay, when in truth and in fact, it's destroying us. How? Because instead of our eyes focusing on Jesus, our eyes are focused on temporary things. So I want to give an altar call. Let me just explain what I mean, though. I don't mean for people to come up here necessarily. We usually think of, think of altar calls as A-L-T-A-R calls. You come to the altar, right, to lay everything on God, and then you go home and you thank God for his forgiveness and move on. I'm asking for a different kind of altar call, an A-L-T-E-R call. It is a call to change, to alter our habits. See, because if you come to this altar and we pray for you, and you go back and you keep doing the same thing, you're going to get the same result. The reality is that you may have been seeking and looking in all the wrong places for fulfillment and success. The result is that you're more tired, more distracted, and more dissatisfied than ever. That's what she's telling us. We think we're being entertained. These behaviors are just helping us to get relaxation from what we're living. These screens become futile attempts to escape. And they do for us what the fruit did for Eve. The fruit left her knowing more than she ever truly wanted to know because her eyes were open, wasn't it? They knew they were naked. She knew more than she ever wanted to know, but she was still disappointed. Can we bow our heads, please, and we, we think on these things. And we'll ask Joy to just share this song, and I'll come back for just a minute, and we'll close the service. You've been listening to a message from Life Assembly. Connect with us online at lifemn.org. And thanks for listening.